This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Pampergus, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making our truth journey a reality. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And just a reminder that when you buy a Veritas recurring subscription, you are receiving a 25% discount. This is a way to reward those who want to stay on board long term. Read our terms for more information. You can purchase three, six, nine months, and one or two years. You can also give the gift of truth. We have many Veritas subscription types for you. And coming soon, SanitasRadio.com. Health declassified, because your health and longevity should not be classified information. Stay tuned. This will be a totally separate radio program with its own subscription. If you enjoy Veritas, then you know that I will apply the same standards to Sanitas. Stay tuned and visit SanitasRadio.com for any updates. And if you want to submit prospective guests that should be interviewed for Sanitas, feel free to submit them too. And for MMS, our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material, and now Phyto Vitamins, visit the Veritas store. And one last thing, speaking of MMS, you may not know this, but a few days ago, MMS News released a newsletter asking people to watch, comment, and share the video titled Leaked, 
prove the Red Cross cured 154 malaria cases with MMS. If you haven't seen it yet, check it out. I posted it at our forum. It's uh, extremely interesting to watch and hear the testimony of physicians and clinicians who are working directly with malaria-stricken individuals in Uganda. I encourage the skeptics, and I know there's plenty of you who are listening who are still probably skeptical. And that's fine. I was one too until I tried it. So if you're a skeptic or not, listen to their first-hand accounts of their experiences. I think you'll be very pleasantly surprised. And you know where you can buy MMS, right on our website. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. The Book of Enoch was considered lost until Freemason and traveler James Bruce returned to Europe with copies from Ethiopia in 1773. These copies were not translated into English until 1821 at Oxford University. This high-degree ritual, titled The Royal Art of Enoch, documents the recovery of the lost word of a master mason, the name of God. It is this ritual in particular that has defined, among other things, the American national character. The Royal Art of Enoch also documents the symbolic restoration of the sun as a premier icon in all of Freemasonry and as a supreme emblem of imperial administration, a religiosity lifted from the ancient mysteries, incorporated into the Abrahamic faiths, and carried on in both Blue Lodge and High Degree Masonry. Tonight, Veritas presents our real-life Da Vinci Code, a national treasure mystery, previously unknown to history and historians in both the East and West. What is the Freemason-Hollywood connection? Why are Masonic symbols all over Washington, D.C., and even NASA emblems? Did you know that the 33rd degree is the only degree that cannot be earned? It is conferred. It's honorary and is awarded by the Mother Supreme Council of the World in Washington, D.C. This is the Master Mason degree. For this and much more, tonight's special guest is a 32nd degree insider. Robert W. Sullivan is coming up next, right now on Veritas. This is Graham Hancock, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Robert W. Sullivan, the fourth, is a philosopher, historian, antiquarian, jurist, theologian, writer, and lawyer. The Royal Art of Enoch is his first published work and is a result of 20 years of research. Mr. Sullivan received his BA from Gettysburg College in 1995, having spent his entire junior year studying European history at St. Catherine's College at Oxford University. He received his Juris Doctor degree from Whitener University, Delaware campus, in 2000. He studied international law and jurisprudence at Trinity College at Oxford University. Mr. Sullivan is a Freemason, having joined Amicable, Amicable St. John's Lodge No. 25 in Baltimore, Maryland in 1997. He became a 32nd-degree Scottish Rite Mason in 1999 at Valley of Baltimore, Orient of Maryland. 
a lifelong Marylander. He resides in Baltimore. And to learn more about Robert Sullivan and his work and purchase his book, The Royal Art of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism, his websites are linked at ours at VeritasRadio.com. And directly from Baltimore, Maryland, I'm honored to have Robert W. Sullivan coming here to Veritas. Hello, Robert, and welcome. How are you? I am well, Mel, and uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction, and um, it's great to be here on Veritas Radio. It's my pleasure, and I was telling you offline that I received your book a few weeks ago. Over 600 pages. You have poured everything that you have into this book, and I uh, I don't know how I'll be able to fit it all in two hours, but right from the beginning, I have to ask you, being that you are a 32nd degree Mason, and putting all this information in this, in this book, I, how are you able to do so? Isn't being a Freemason somewhat of a, of a mystery school where you have to be initiated in order for you to receive this information? How are you disseminating this? Well, the, the answer may surprise you. Um, when it comes to actually discussing the history of Freemasonry and to a certain extent its rituals, a lot of this material now is what you would call part of the public record. For example, um, you know, I mean, I myself have seen you go on YouTube on a Friday night and if you just want to see, you know, people enacting this ritual even in a Masonic lodge, I've seen this done. I've seen it on the History Channel, Discovery Channel. Um, even when in the higher degrees, um, there are books out there that, you know, you, you can buy online, Albert Pike's book, um, you know, Albert Mackey's Encyclopedia and History of Freemasonry. Um, the general feeling within Freemasonry is that if you're writing a history book of Freemasonry and even discussing the symbolism and the philosophies about it, um, that's really not so much a taboo subject. Um, again, my experience in writing this book is the materials out there, um, and it's, and it's not, like it's sequestered away, but I will say this, it is definitely spread out all over the place. You'll find some bits of information in this book, some in Albert Mackey, some in Manly Palmer Hall, you know, some in Francis Yates. She was an English historian and was, and was a woman and was not a Mason, yet she talks about it. Um, you know, Albert Pike. Um, discussing the history of Freemasonry and even its symbols and their symbolic interpretations um, and in the Blue Lodge in high degrees, somewhat isn't forbidden, what is sort of really a no-no, um, and they do frown upon, and I have avoided this in my book, is, and, and, and Albert Mackey really gets into this in his encyclopedia. He says, if you want to talk, you know, if you want to talk about the history of Freemasonry, you know, even, you know, the allegorical meanings of the rituals, the symbols, um, things of that nature, he said, there's really no prohibition against that. He said, but what, what masonry really does frown upon is they don't want you giving up like the handshake, the passwords, the tokens, um, the secret names, um, things of that nature. Um, that, and my book does not do that. In fact, when, when, when it comes to writing down the secret name of God, which is prevalent in my book, I actually don't write it down. I just write the initials down. Um, so when you're writing history books about Freemasonry and the symbols, you know, the rituals and the philosophies behind it. There's really not so much of a prohibition against that. I, I, the book's been out almost for a year now, and I have not had anyone, Masonic or otherwise, come to me saying, oh, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have done this. In fact, most Freemasons that I've been in touch with love the book. But um, what what is kind of considered off-limits, which if you're a Mason, you really don't want to write down, you know, the passwords, the tokens, the handshakes, um, you know, the um, the sigils, if you will, um, you know, regarding the, you know, the handshakes, 
that sort of uh, taboo, pro- prohibited material. And you joined a Masonic Lodge in Baltimore, a third-degree Blue Lodge Mason in 1997. And in 1999, before finishing law school, you became a 32nd-degree Mason in the Masonic organizational structure. I have to ask you this then. In the same organization structure, the 33rd degree is the only degree that cannot be earned. It is conferred, it's honorary, and it's awarded by the Mother Supreme Council of the World in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us more about this? Well, yeah, sure. Um, when, when, you, when, when you become a Blue Lodge Freemason, this is degrees one, two, and three. Um, these are the degrees of Entered Apprentice, Fellowcraft, and Master Mason. Um, once you are conferred, and it depends on your lodge and it depends on your jurisdiction, um, when I went through, when I went through Amicable Lodge, um, you get the ritual, and then afterwards you have to rehearse for what's called a catechism, where you're asked questions about the ritual and you have to answer them. It's, it's pre-scripted. There's no, it's not like there's a wrong answer. I mean, you, you find out what the question is and there's a set answer, once, but you have to memorize it. Once you pass the catechism, in Maryland at any rate, um, then you are considered a master mason. So even for me, even after going through the ritual, once you're, once you successfully complete the catechism on that degree, um, then you're a master mason. Um, when you join, after that, there are really two main, uh, you know, separate bodies that one can go into. There are others, but there are really the two main ones are the York Rite and the Scottish Rite. I chose Scottish Rite just because, and th- this is not me talking negative or anything, um, the York Rite ends, the York Rite ritual, or degree path, if you will, ends with the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar ceremony requires a Christian confession. Um, so if you're like me, a deist, or if you're Jewish or Buddhist or Muslim, um, you might have a little, you know, it's, it's really the only Masonic um, um, ceremony that actually requires a religious um, confession. I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I'm not saying it for that. But I went into the Scottish Rite, um, which is degrees fourth or fourth, through 32, um, you are absolutely correct. The 33rd degree of the Scottish Rite is honorary. You cannot solicit it. You cannot petition for it. Um, it is generally given to people in the community who do charity work, um, who have uh, been in maybe perhaps in politics or have had a political career, um, perhaps become famous um, and, and, you know, d- donate time to the community through their um, fame. Um, it's completely honorary. You cannot solicit it. It is bestowed upon you. And you're correct. Um, you know, once you reach the 30, 32nd in the Scottish Rite, it's essentially over with unless you get a letter in the mail or a phone call from the um, Supreme Council saying they want to um, honor you with the 33rd degree and it cannot be solicited. And um, you just, uh, you know, you just, it just, it's, it's through merit um, and it's not through anything you, you know, you solicit. What does it take for somebody to become a 33rd degree Mason? I'm sure that from all the Masons, I'm pretty sure that this probably would be a, a large uh, a minority, if you will. But I think of, for example, Opie, Ron Howard. He, in order to finish his movie Apollo 13, I heard that he had to, uh, he, he had to complete his 33rd degree, third uh, degree. How would somebody like him do it just because he was filming the movie and of course we know that nasa is very well connected to freemasonry um i i i I do not know anything about um uh ron howard's membership in masonry but um if 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 he went through the scottish right and was a 32nd uh, you know it is not uncommon um for a celebrity 
to receive the 33rd degree, um, it, you know, it, to, to obtain it, it's generally done through charity work, work within Freemasonry, um, work within the community. This can be political. This can be um, through an industry that does charity work or, um, you know, you, you have reached a certain level of celebrity where they will bestow it upon you. This could be, you know, again, this can be up through, you know, a political political rising as well. Um, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, the former head of the FBI, became a 33rd through, um, you know, his directorship of the FBI. Whether you want to think that's good or bad, that's up to the individual. But, um, you know, you know, being, you know, Harry Truman's another one um, through, you know, being, you know, the president and uh, his association with politics. And, you know, he was awarded the 33rd degree. So it basically has to do with your work in the community on a political, social, economic level. Um, I, I, it is news to me that Ron Howard is a 33rd. I, I, I just don't know enough about it. I, I mean, I didn't even know he was a Mason, to be honest with you. But um, there are many Masons in Hollywood that I'm certain of. I mean, I documented it in the book. Um, and I would not be at all surprised if you were to tell me that Ron Howard um, was a Mason. And when, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned this because I document, um, yeah, there, there is numerous you know, when you get into the NASA iconography, and I document the one, the 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 Apollo 13 symbol. But yeah, when you get into it, you know, you're definitely dealing with um, you know, names of you know the Apollo, Gemini, Mercury. Um, you know, these all have quasi Masonic meanings, no doubt about that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it would not surprise me at all to learn that Ron Howard was not a uh, a Freemason and even was a 33rd at this point. And prior to the 1700s, I want to discuss this with you. I'm not sure that this is part of your book, but I want to get your take on this. Prior to the 1700s, the Freemasons were employed by by popes to build uh, Europe's cathedrals. Anybody who's been in Europe or those of you who live there, you know what I'm referring to. It's just absolutely astounding, beautiful architecture. But in the early 1700s, something changed. And all of a sudden, the Holy See turned on the Freemasons, almost as if one pope realized that there were symbols or secrets that were being passed through the architecture. So Pope Leo the Thirteenth, I believe, condemned Freemasonry in eighteen eighty four. So even today's pope, while he was a cardinal, I mean the one before the last one, uh, in nineteen eighty three, he said, "Quote: The faithful who enroll in Masonic associations are in a state of grave sin and may not receive holy communion." Unquote. What happened? Why the change of heart? Well, the, the first papal bull against Freemasonry, I want to say, comes in the 1700s. Um, it, it's earlier than that. Um, when you get into concepts of the actual Germanic stone workers, um, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, there are definitely, these, these buildings are definitely riddles in stone, no, no doubt about that. The likely explanation is that these stonemasons are using some sort of Kabbalistic mathematical secrets being brought back from the Holy Land by the Knights Templars. That's the most common theory on all this. I mean, I, I can't document it 100%, but, um, you know, that seems to be the, the idea is that the Templars brought back some sort of Kabbalistic mathematical secrets from the Holy Land, um, and that these Germanic stoneworkers were now, with this knowledge, able to produce these, you know, flying buttresses, these huge um, cathedrals. Freemasonry as an organization comes um, comes together. I mean, and as modern Freemasonry as it is today is 1717 on June 24th in England. Um, the June 24th day is a reference to the summer solstice, by the way. Um, but um, it's shortly thereafter that the Pope um, 
um, uh, you know, sort of issues this papal bull against Freemasonry. What what it sort of, um, you know, uh, was worried about was um, that the the Masons were sort of um, it, it was really in 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 the early 1720s. This is a couple years after the formation of the Grand Lodge. Um, the constitutions of the Freemasons are published by a Presbyterian minister named James Anderson. What Anderson does in those constitutions is he basically says that in order to, that basically if you want to join a Masonic lodge, the only requirement, um, well, not the only requirement, but one of the requirements is that you have to believe in a supreme being, um, or you know what, what in Masonry is called the great architect of the universe. Um, you know, or, you know, this just sort of um, monotheistic deity figure, if you will. Um, what he kind of disassociates himself with is, it's not that he disassociates himself, is he doesn't require any sort of one, one person to become, there's no religious requirement. I mean, you can be a Christian and join, you can be Jewish and join, you can be Muslim and join, you can be Buddhist and join. As long as you believe in this supreme being sort of figure, um, you can join masonry. Well, the I mean, for the obvious reason, you can see that this sort of is disturbing to um, the Vatican and Rome, um, where you have basically Christians sitting next to, you know, perhaps, you know, Buddhists or Hindus, um, you know, invoking the supreme being or the great architect of the universe and the name of Jesus Christ is not being mentioned. So that's what Rome really takes exception to. Um, and that, and that's where, you know, the, the sort of anti-Masonic, you know, element from Rome is coming from. It's not so much the Freemasonry is anti-Christian. I don't think it is at all. It's just different. It doesn't require a Christian confession to join. It just requires uh, that the candidate who, who's petitioning the lodge, um, believe in this great architect, God, supreme being, call it what you will. Um, and this is what kind of upsets the, you know, the, the, the popes in Rome, as it were. Now, going back to your history, how does somebody like you become a Mason all of a sudden? Well, for me, um, there was, for me, it was something that I had always been interested in. In Masonry, in Freemasonry, you can't receive the higher degrees that would be the York and the Scottish Rite in the United States without first becoming what's called a Blue Lodge Mason. These are the first three degrees of Masonry, which, are, you know, I've mentioned are entered apprentice, fellow craft, and master Mason. How do you become a Mason? Um, the the common phrase you will hear, um, and you'll see this all over the place on the Internet, is um, to be one, ask one. So um, for me, um, when I was, before prior to joining, going to law school, this would have been, let's see, 1997, I went to law school, this would have been 1996, uh, both my mother and my father are antique dealers. And it was through a friend of theirs who was also an antique dealer and collector who was in a Masonic Lodge. He was in um, Amicable at the time. At the time, the lodge was just called Amicable Number Twenty Five. It subsequently has merged with another temple, and now it's Amicable St. John's Lodge Number Twenty Five. At any rate, um, it was through him, and I just said, you know, you know, he 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 had the ring on with the square and compasses and the letter G, and I said, hey, I see you're a Freemason. He said, yeah, that's right. I said, look, I'm asking you right now. I want to join. Um, in the Sullivan family, I can tell you that there have been numerous, numerous of my grandfathers and great grandfathers have been Masons. Um, two of my great grandfathers were past masters. Um, if, if you're not sure what that is, that's a person who used to be the worshipful master of his lodge. Um, the person who basically oversaw the lodge for a year, you know, its administration and finances and things like that. So in a nutshell, in 1996, I asked him to join. Um, I got a petition. I filled it out. I, I cut a check for the entrance fee. 
Um, this would have been summer of 1996 or thereabouts. And it wasn't until around September, October of, um, of 96 that he called me and said, well, we're voting on your membership in, in the next two weeks or so. And the next time the lodge meets, he said, I don't see any problems. Um, when I, when I went through, when, when, when you petition a lodge, um, I actually had to meet with three of the brothers who, um, asked me questions. They wanted to know what, what was my motivations for joining. If I believed in God, I met them. Um, you know, it's like what you call like a, just an investigative committee has been set, you know, sets up just to make sure the person who's, you know, petitioning to join isn't some, you know, you know, crazy person or something. So at any rate, I met with three brothers. I was interviewed, um, past that. Um, the peti- my petition was voted on, um, and it passed. Um, you know, and again, if you, if you know Masonic lore, and I'll throw this in, um, when, when, when a candidate petitions a Masonic lodge, it's put to a vote, and the vote is what, you know, you, you go into the room or the vo- voting, you know, box by yourself, and you have a white ball and a black cube. And if you're pro the person or you really don't care, you just drop the white one. But if you don't want the guy to join, you drop the black one. This is where the term black ball comes from. You blackballed someone that comes straight out of masonry. Interesting. Um, at any rate, I, um, I, 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 you know, I, I was voted in and um, I received the three degrees. Um, I received the entered apprentice degree in January of 97, the fellow craft in May of 97, and the Master Mason degree in September of 1997. And uh, that's how I became a Freemason. And there's this, uh, I don't know why, but especially in this uh, alternative media world that we live in, why is Freemasonry so demonized these days, almost as if it's a negative and a cult or secret society? Well, it, it, it is a secret society. It's certainly a society with secrets. Um, I, I think that I, I don't know necessarily if I would agree with you 100% to say it's being demonized. Um, I can tell you, and I know what I am speaking of, that I know that within the last two or three years, um, the applications um, to join a Masonic Lodge, at least my lodge, has really swelled in the last couple of years. Um, this has mainly, I would address a lot of this to what you said, the social media, things like Dan Brown, the National Treasure movies. People really seem to be interested more into the, it seems to me, I mean, whether a person wants to think this is a good or a bad thing, I leave that to the person to decide. But there is definitely this renewed interest in Freemasonry and definitely, it's definitely has to do with the, what you would want to call the occult or esoteric side of the craft. I mean, that really seems to be the driving force behind this. And that wasn't the case up until even 20 years ago. I mean, when I, when I joined, um, Back in 1997, you know, the the motivating factor, I mean, even for me, was was you were joining because you had family members who had joined and you wanted to carry on a family tradition. That was mainly my primary uh, motivation for joining. And alternatively, um, you know, you wanted to help out in the community. You wanted to be an upstanding citizen, things like that, which, you know, we all strive for. Um, You know, now... It was either a year or two ago. It was either last year or the year before that. Um, I want to say there was a Masonic organization. I can't remember which one. It might have been the Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction, but don't hold me to that. They did a poll as to why young men um, were petitioning Masonic lodges. And the answer they got was um, they were interested in the esoteric and occult secrets of the craft. So there definitely is a pendulum, a pendulum swing going on, and I, I would really stem this to things like the, you know, the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, 
you know, this sort of renewed interest in the, these, you know, sort of quasi-Masonic groups now, which are almost become, you know, daily words such as the Illuminati, the Rosicrucians, the Templars, things like that. Um, and of course, you know, when you invite, when, when something grows and it kind of becomes popular, well, I mean, you know, you know, you can't do that. And of course, people want to criticize and attack it, you know, call it a cult, you know, call it, you know, that this is, you know, Luciferianism or demonism or whatever. I mean, and, you know, everything has its dark and light side to it. I certainly am not going to come on here and tell you otherwise. But, um, you know, it definitely seems to be, you know, definitely becoming more popular due to these esoteric, you know, interest in, in it. Um, and I, I mean, I definitely in the book, in the Royal Arch book, I mean, I definitely believe, and I mean, I stated as a matter of fact that Masonry is definitely carrying on, or at least trying to carry on, you know, and this is both in the Blue Lodge and the high degrees, this sort of mystery tradition with, you know, alchemical secrets, um, you know, hidden symbols, you know, this deals with themes of astrology, things like that. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it to, to some people it's unnerving and it can, uh, can cause a negative reaction, no doubt about it. And by, by the way, uh, bad choice of semantics. I didn't mean to say demonize, but for example, let, let's let say that me, Mel Fabregas, decides to become a Mason. I can guarantee you people will write to me saying, oh, Mel, I'm not listening to you anymore because now you have become a Freemason. There's this negative connotation that I would like to dispel if possible. You have the Ron Pauls of the world who he's a Mason. You have some of the, you know, astronauts, uh, Buzz Aldrin, I believe, Edgar Mitchell, uh, Neil, Neil Armstrong. These people have to become a Freemason in order to achieve some of their accomplishments. Why is it that you have to become a Mason in order to excel in certain areas? Well, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's if if it's that or if it's the other way around. Is that people who excel become a Freemason? Um, it has certainly drawn a lot of the world, you know, a, a lot of what you would call some of the greatest minds in history to it. Um, it, it definitely c conceals, or at least tries to conceal, in its rituals and allegory and its history. Well, not necessarily its history, but in its rituals, its symbols, these what you would call hidden truths. Um, and I, I don't know if, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say, well, to receive, to, to, to achieve celebrity, you have to become a Freemason. It, I mean, it almost could be the other way around is that the, the person who becomes the Freemason is, you know, very driven, is very exceptional, and they go on to other things. I mean, we, you know, when we talk about, I mean, you know, we've, you mentioned a couple astronauts. I mean, you know, there are other astronauts in history who are obviously not Freemasons. Um, we have presidents. Um, of the United States. Some of them have been Freemasons. Some of them have not been Freemasons, inclu including, and some of them have been very anti-Freemasons, including John Quincy Adams, who, for lack of a better word, swayed the Fred Federalist Party in the early 1800s into anti-Masonry. So, you know, just because a person has received celebrity and, you know, has become, you know, well-known or whatever and is a Mason, you know, I would not necessarily put the blame on Freemasonry's doorstep. I mean, the last Masonic president that I'm aware of was Gerald Ford. So, you know, we've had um, several presidents after him that, you know, were not Mason. I mean, I, I know you could craft an argument that Reagan was, but that was honorary. Um, as far as people, you know, saying, well, I'm not going to listen to you anymore, 
you know, I mean, you know, I can't dictate to somebody who or what they want to listen to. All I can do is try to present the facts in a, you know, even keeled way. And I, my, my attitude is I just present the facts as I present them. If the person doesn't like it and wants to reject it, then that's up to that person. I probably couldn't sway them anyway. Somebody not too long ago sent me a picture of uh, President Barack Obama being a Mason and even showing uh, his ring. Do you lend any credence to this? Um, I have no knowledge that President Barack Obama is a Mason. Um, I, w I would have thought that would have come out in the mainstream at this point, but I, I have no knowledge whatsoever that uh, Barack Obama is a Mason. Um, I, I have to be honest, if, if he was, that necessarily wouldn't surprise me. I, would, I wouldn't say I'd be floored by that, but um, as I sit here and talk to you on the phone, I cannot tell you one way or another that uh, Barack Obama is a Freemason. Is there some kind of a directory where people can actually, if they have a question about somebody being or not being a Mason, is, is there secrecy behind their list or is it public? Um, it depends on the person. Um, I know for a fact there are websites out there um, maintained by Masonic organizations listing famous Freemasons. Um, I know of no um, directory um public or private that lists uh, Masonic memberships of, of what you would call just of like your, you know, common township blue lodge. I, I know of, I know of um, not, not, nothing to that effect. Um, I know there are websites out there maintained by Masonic organizations that list, um, you know, Masonic members. These would of course be the more famous ones, of course. Um, but I can tell you that most Freemasons, including the ones I know, um, generally wear a ring of some kind, or if they are in a suit, wear a, uh, a tie lapel or a tie bar or a lapel pin or a ring of some kind. I wear two Masonic rings. Um, I, I, don't, I, I do not know of any Freemason that would conceal their membership from somebody. Um, if they did, that would be for their, that would be on a personal level or for, that would be a personal choice for them to make. Um, and I would not try to influence it one way or the other. No, and definitely that's fair. And I have to ask you, when I look back, again, going back to the architecture, I think of the cathedrals in Europe and even the buildings in the government buildings in Washington. But at one point, it just absolutely stopped the, the, the magnificence of the architecture. We don't see that being produced today, the, the craftsmanship. What happened? Well, I think, um, I think that in, in, it, it depends on the type of building that you're constructing. Usually if it's a govern, if it's a building of import, um, a lot of times you will have, um, it aligned or, you know, uh, or aligned, I guess is perhaps maybe too strong a word, but being influenced by, um, uh, certain stars above. This is what is called the hermetic maxim of as above, so below. Um, you also have Renaissance masters talking about this, such as Raymond Lully. That um, buildings of import, of import such as churches, um, you know, government buildings, um, you know, should be aligned to certain constellations for um, symbolic mem as symbolic memory temples. Um, a lot of the buildings are already completed, but like if you get into modern day, some of this information is clearly lost. I do not dispute that. Um, and you know, when you're getting into um, you know buildings that are being constructed um, today. Um, you definitely, you know, you may not, it may not be as adroitly, you know, present as it was in the past, but um, you will definitely clearly see, you know, I guess it depends on the architect and how familiar they are with some of this information is would also be. Um, you get into some of the guys designing the federal districts, such as Lanfant, 
um, Latrobe, Mills, Hoban, um, you know, even Washington, Carroll. Um, these guys were all Masons. These guys would have all been familiar with the with this work. Um, so, you know, you definitely have these astral alignments. You know, you have references to the equinoxes and solstices. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely there. I mean, if you don't think that the federal district has Masonic symbology in it, you know, you're really naive as far as I'm concerned. But um, as far as modern day construction, um, I mean, it's not necessarily that it's not present. You might have an architect who may not be familiar with it. You may have... Um, you know, uh, it could be, you know, like I said, an architect is just, you know, not familiar with this information um, or maybe, you know, for whatever reason, there's, you know, I know that there's a book out there that talks about this. They said, you know, they wanted to align it to this, but there was other buildings blocking it so they couldn't do it. So, I mean, you know, in perhaps in modern day construction, um, you may not see it as predominantly as you did in um, previous previous, uh, you know, errors or whatever. But also, I will say that when you get into um, you know, modern day architecture. I mean, you could still find it. I mean, it depends on, I guess, how you um, want to defend, define the term modern day. Um, you know, you'll, you'll clearly see evidence of this um, during the construction in Baltimore of the, uh, to the, the Basilica and the George Washington Monument. Um, you'll find this in the uh, St. Louis Gateway Arch um, that has esoteric symbology and alignments. Um, you know, in the late 19th century, you have, um, you know, symbology going on with the Statue of Liberty. So, I mean, you, you definitely can. That's the yeah, late 19th century. So you could definitely still see it. Um, and again, it's usually depending on, you know, the person who's behind it or, you know, it ha- what kind of what's their, you know, level of knowledge, if you will. There's a little bit of a uh, I can't say that I understand this because I know that the, that the Pope, for example, probably would not want the, 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 the people from the Catholic Church to join Freemasonry because, you know, the the they don't want Jewish people and they don't want Buddhists and they don't want Muslims to be around them. You know, it's it's their monopoly they want to keep. But are Freemasons agents of the Vatican? And I'm saying this because I, I think of the Knights of Malta. I think I think of the Knights of Columbus. There's some relationship here, isn't it? Well, it's, it's the relationship that you're referring to is, and I, I mentioned in the book is, um, it, it's it's a split um, you have a symbolic and well, not symbolic. You have a philosophical split um, between Blue Lodge Freemasonry and the higher degrees. Um, I say in the book, and I am not the first Masonic author to delve into this, that when you are dealing with Blue Lodge Freemasonry, um, this is degrees one, two, and three. You are definitely dealing with themes of what you would call anti-monarchy, anti-Rome. You know, even anti-religion, it's egalitarian, it's equality, it's the brotherhood of man, the fatherhood of God. Now, when you get into the higher degrees, and I propose in my book, well, I don't propose it, I state it, um, it I mean, it, it is with, you know, the, the, the high degrees of Freemasonry, what, what ultimately becomes the Scottish Rite and the York Rite are born out of what is called the Rite of Perfection. Um, and that the right of perfection comes out of Paris, France, um, in the mid 1700s. The right of perfection is 25 degrees invented by the Jesuits as part of the Counter Reformation to lure Protestant, to secretly lure Protestant Freemasons back to the Pope in Rome. So it, it was sort of a, uh, a Counter Reformation ploy, if you will. Um, to develop these higher degrees that further Freemasonry, where you were basically becoming a high degree Freemason, but your um, your allegiance was to the Pope or to the Jesuit order. 
I refer to the high degrees in the Royal Arch book as the Jesuit degrees. I also refer to them as the Roman Catholic degrees. You will clearly find um, evidence in the high degrees of themes that completely 180 contradict the philosophies of the Blue Lodge. You will have themes of papal monarchy. You will have themes of our aristocracy. I mean, it's the royal arch. It's the royal secret. Um, you know, you will find um, themes of um, Roman Catholicism. In the 14th degree, you are uh, you take a Roman Catholic style of vow, if you will. Um, so, yeah, you definitely have um, these higher degrees being developed by the Society of Jesus. Now, what is lost to almost to history is is and and this is where the waters really become muddy is after these 25 degrees are taken you know are created they seem to be taken and run with by other entities that do not have necessarily what you would call allegiances to the pope in rome i mean i i can't tell you i mean I, and i don't think it's the case that the when the supreme council of the scottish rite is set up in charleston south carolina in 1801, they were doing it on the behest of the Jesuits. Um, that I do not believe. I do believe that the Jesuits were creating these higher degrees as sort of this counter-reformation ploy. And my book is one, you know, is one of the few that talks about this. The motivation for this is not only to secretly lure Protestants back to Rome, but it's clear to me that the Jesuits were using these higher degrees as a vehicle to restore the um, Stuart monarchy back to the throne of England. So, yeah, I cannot necessarily dispute um, that there was definitely what you would call, you know, Vatican elements involved with this. There's two, there's almost two ways of looking at it. You could say the Jesuits were acting on their own um, when they did this. That would come as no surprise to me either. I mean, the, the Pope suppresses the Society of Jesus in 1773. So, I mean, for the Jesuits to act unilaterally on this is certainly no surprise, and it's certainly no surprise in that time frame. But, um, yeah, I mean, you could definitely say, you know, or you can argue it the other way, that the Jesuits were being, you know, were basically um, acting on behalf of the, um, you know, the Pope in Rome as sort of this counter-reformation counter trick. Um, to basically try to pull the wool over everybody, all the Protestants' eyes, while secretly waging a war against the Protestant monarchs um, in England. Even though the Vatican has its own intelligence apparatus, I've always considered the Jesuits to be part of that intelligence apparatus, so I can see how they would come to the, the, the Freemasonry to try to bring back the Protestants, uh, Protestants back to the uh, Catholic and the Vatican fold. It wasn't um, Adam Weissup, a Jesuit too? I, I, I totally agree with what you just said. Yes. I mean, I mean, if, if you are thinking, you have to think of the, if you're thinking of the Jesuits in the 21st century view, you're, you're really missing the picture. I mean, the Jesuits back in the 1700s, 1800s were, for lack of a better word, Europe CIA. Um, yeah. I mean, and when you get into, um, Weishaupt, um, Weishaupt is the founder of the, uh, Bavarian Illuminati. This is a, quasi-Masonic group, um, you know, I'll backpedal just a minute. Um, I mentioned that the, um, that the Jesuits are suppressed by the Pope. I believe it's Pope Clement XIV, but I'd have to look on that. They're, they're suppressed by the Pope, um, because basically at that point in time, the Jesuits are almost out of control. You know, they are this secret society, um, CIA type of apparatus. You have numer numerous Jesuit um, priests talking about the Egyptian mysteries, 
that the you know Christianity was incorporating elements of this. They're acting unilaterally. Um, by 1773, the Pope puts the Society of Jesus out of order, uh, out of business. Um, and then a couple years later, in 1776, on May the 1st, which is an interesting date to choose, um, uh, May the 1st is a, a pagan holiday called Beltane. It's a, um, for lack of a better word, it's the springtime equivalent of Halloween. Um, a guy named Adam Weishaupt um, forms this group called the Bavarian Illuminati, um, which is supposed to be this new firebrand of Freemasonry. Um, this is on May the 1st, 1776, and he forms it to to be the sort of what you would want to call, I, I would not go so far as to call this group atheists, but I would definitely go so far as to say they were militant deists. You know, there there's strong evidence to suggest, and I certainly don't shy away from it, that this is the group that's really your motivating factor behind the French Revolution. Weishaupt and I've never mentioned this. I mentioned it in the book. No one's asked me about this, and I'm going to, you know, mention it because it's worth noting. Even the name of Adam Weishaupt, you know, is an occult riddle. I mean, Adam is, of course, the first man in the Bible, and then his last name Weishaupt. That's a formulation of two German words, Weissen, um, which means um, to know, and Haupt, which means to command. So the name Adam Weishaupt literally means the first man to have knowledge. I mean, and, you know, you know, you know, is that just a coincidence? But, but Weishaupt is accused, um, by another Freemason named Adolf Kinnigi. Um, Kinnigi is a German aristocrat who joins the Illuminati soon after its creation. Kinnigi's a Germ- German or Prussian Freemason. And he, when, when he joins the Illuminati, he gets a whole host of German Freemasons to join. Um, to join the Bavarian Illuminati, and this is when their ranks really grow. And um, Kennedy soon after leaves the order, and he writes a treatise as to why he leaves, and he says, well, I joined this group to, you know, promote this militant firebrand, Pythagorean, you know, equality-styled Freemasonry. He said, but the Illuminati is just the Jesuits under another name, and he accuses Weishaupt of being a Jesuit in disguise. Um, this, would, this would not at all be surprising um, or alarming to anyone because numerous leaders of the Illuminati, Weishaupt included, um, were either, you know, were heavily associated with the Jesuit order, at least educated by them. The entire cell, counter cell, um, apparatus of the Illuminati order is based on the cell, counter cell, um, apparatus of the Jesuits. Uh, the Jesuits are getting it from another secret society back in the day called the Lollards. Um, and that's coming out of England. But, um, you know, and, and when you when you look at this from a historical standpoint, basically it looks like to me is that the Illuminati was just serving as a front or just the Jesuits under another name um, to basically survive the French Revolution, the wars of Napoleon, um, you know, the, you know, the, the Napoleonic Wars, the turmoil um, coming after the French Revolution, the first French Republic, um, the monarchy or the empire of Napoleon, because after Napoleon's defeated, you know, well, what do you have? You have the restoration of the papal state, you have the restoration of the Society of Jesus, and you have the restoration of um, the Spanish Inquisition. So it's like the Jesuits were just going underground under this new name, um, the Illuminati, almost just, you know, you know, they couldn't they couldn't call themselves that because of the suppression of 1773. But after the wars of Napoleon were over with, um, you know, bang, there's the Jesuits uh, right back on the scene. Just and real quick. Um, you know, Weishaupt aside, you have another um, character 
um, in the Illuminati, who's Jesuit, who's a Jesuit, um, he's at least trained by the Jesuits, a, na- a man by the name of Ignaz von Born. Um, von Born is the head of the Illuminati in Vienna, and he serves as the template or the inspiration, that's probably the better word, of Zaroaster in Mozart's uh, Masonic Illuminist Magic Flute Opera. And then just think of, uh, you mentioned Egypt, and, and I'm, I'm just looking at the Jesuits, and I'm thinking of the influence that the Freemasons had in the United States. We're going to discuss all of this, but I think of this separation separation of church and state. Didn't that come from the Freemasonry, uh, the, the Constitution of Freemasonry? Yes, you're cor- you, you are absolutely correct, Mel. Um, there are the constitutions of Freemason, uh, Freemasonry, or the Freemasons, that's really what it's, what it's called, is a legendary history, and it provides the bylaws of Freemasonry. It was written by a Presbyterian minister um, named James Anderson. I want to say it came out in 1723. I know it's reprinted, I want to say, in 1732. Um, it is one of the first manuscripts um, published by Dr. Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia, um, when he sets up his printing press, um, Franklin, of course, was a Mason who went on to become the uh, Grand Master of the State of Pennsylvania, and um, uh, he was a member of a French Masonic Lodge called the Nine Sisters. But at any rate, you were asking me about the um, constitutions. Um, the separation of church and state, we, I talk, talk, we mentioned this earlier in your program, the when when Anderson drafts this, he basically, and I don't like to use this word, but he basically he basically gets rid of that's probably the better word a religious requirement to join uh, masonry. So what he does is he basically removes religion out of masonry and just turns it into deism. You will clearly see that reflected in the United States Constitution, where in the separation of church and state, where the um, Constitution will not allow the government to endorse one specific religion over another. Um, the other big influence of the constitutions of Freemasonry, and this has to do with more with Blue Lodge governance in Freemasonry, is the triple division of government in the United States um, in the constitution between an executive, a legislative, and a Supreme Court or judiciary. Um, that comes straight out of Blue Lodge Freemasonry, where the government of the Blue Lodge is triple divided between a worshipful master who is the head of the lodge, that would be your executive, and a junior and senior warden. Um, this triple division in the Blue Lodge um, is parallels the sun, um, the movement of the sun. The worshipful master is the rising sun. The junior warden sitting in the south is the sun at meridian, and the senior warden sitting in the west is the setting sun. So the triple division of governance um, in Blue Lodge Freemasonry is based on the three phases of the sun. That comes into the United States um, Constitution as the triple division of government between split between a executive, a legislative, and a judicial branch. And I just can't stop thinking of, of, of the Catholic Church and the influence that they have too. I think of the of Opus Dei, which is a, an institution within the Roman Catholic Church. They the Opus Dei members are called White Masons or White Masonry, the Roman Catholic Mafia, or, or the Fifth Column of God. Have you researched this too? Uh, uh, no, Mel. Um, I, I'm not an expert on Opus Dei. I've heard of it. My, my, only, um, my only influence um, or my only uh, in contact with this would be through the Dan Brown book, 
but um, Opus Day, I mean, I, I know of it, but I, I couldn't tell you anything about their machinations or their structure or anything like that. That's fine. Sounds interesting. It just caught my eye, the, the term white masonry, I thought you, you might have known. But the one part that I keep going back recently is the Egyptian mythology and symbology turn into Christianity. And even some of those symbols are, are fed into, into Freemasonry. Can you talk about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, but we, yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll start with the Egyptian, and then we'll go to Masonry, and then we'll go to Christianity. Um, but you could do it either way. Um, the Egyptian mythology is what you're, which de- what I call to just sum it up real quick. Um, you know, you could talk about this, like you said, for 48 hours, but it's what you call the Osirian cycle. You have this Egyptian sun god. You have several Egyptian sun gods, and and this is really important that people. You know, Egypt, the term Egyptian sun god is thrown around on the internet just willy-nilly all over the place, and you really gotta separate what these guys are. Um, you have this Egyptian sun god named Osiris. Um, he is the sun, and he is married to his wife sister named Isis. And, you know, Osiris is the sun, so of course, Isis is the moon. Um, in the Egyptian stellar pantheon, Osiris is the constellation Orion, and Isis is the star Sirius. Um, you have another Egyptian sun god named Amun-Re or Ra. He is what you would call the spiritual force behind the sun, where if you want to say Osiris is the material sun, the sun that you know shines down on the earth and causes plant life to grow, that would be Osiris. But the sort of spiritual, esoteric, occult force behind the sun is what you would call Amun-Re or Amun-Ra. Um, he's more important than, than Osiris. As part of the Osirian legend, Osir- I mean, Osiris is betrayed by his brother, um, a guy named Typhon, and he's killed, and his body's cut up. And um, to make to make a long story real short, um, Osiris is resurrected by his wife Isis, and the way that she resurrects him is she possesses the secret name of Amun-Re or Amun-Ra, the sun god. Um, what that actual name is is lost to history. The, uh, I want to say that the actual um, tablet that that name is mentioned was actually scratched away or, or faded due to time. So whatever this name, lost name was, we just don't know. Um, but at any rate, she possessed the secret name. Isis possessed the secret name of Amun-Re, and with the secret na- with the secret name, she produces magic that resurrects Osiris, and he goes on to become the solar god of the dead. But before he does that, he impregnates, he basically creates a solar air, um, which is Horus. Um, and this is, you know, you know, the, 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 the virgin mother Isis birthed the sun god Horus in Osiris's stead. Um, you, you know, you will see this reflected in Blue Lodge Freemasonry in the third degree ritual where the I mean, and this is, you know, you, you, you know, we're going into a little murky waters here, but it's worth talking about. Um, the third degree ritual of Blue Lodge Freemasonry, the candidate portrays a character named Herma Biff, who is sort of this architect Freemason constructing King Solomon's temple. Um, he possesses this secret word, the secret name of God, and it's through this secret name that all learning is made possible, including the several, 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 excuse me, the seven liberal arts and mathematics. This ties into the royal arts degree, which is a higher degree. But at any rate, 
getting back to the Blue Lodge ritual, he is, Hiram Abiff is betrayed by three fellow craft who want to extract this word from him. And what, what they say is they confront him at, while the temple's being built and it's almost completed. They confront him and say, we want the last, we want this word. And he won't give it up. He said, once the temple's complete, I'll give it to you, but not until then. The first guy attacks him and wounds him. Then he goes to another gate to escape. The second assassin or ruffian attacks him. And he goes to the third gate where the death blow is delivered. And Hiram Abiff is, his body is concealed in the west or west of the temple. Well, west of the temple represents the setting or dying sun. He is, his body is buried and it's concealed with some, what's called a sprig of acacia. That flower is sacred to the sun god Apollo. So, I mean, right here we're talking, you know, references to the sun. And Hiram Abiff is just one of these Osiris sun stand-ins, if you will. When Hiram Abiff goes missing, King Solomon basically does a roll call and says, where's Hiram Abiff? And no one knows. And he dispatches 12 fellow crafts to go look for his body. Um, the 12 fellow crafts represent the 12 houses of the Zodiac who are going looking for their lost solar ruler. I mean, as the sun goes through, you know, is assisted through the 12 houses on a, you know, annual basis. When, when they find his body, they resurrect him, but not until the third try. They try resurrecting him first with a grip of what's, of the entered apprentice degree. That fails. Then they try resurrecting him with the grip of a fellow craft. That also doesn't work. Then they try resurrecting him with a grip of a master mason, which is also known as the strong grip of the lion's paw. That works and resurrects Hiram Abiff. Um, the lion's paw is a reference to the constellation of Leo the lion, which is the soul house of the sun. The concept of the, you know, dying and resurrected sun god, you know, you'll see this in mythology. And of course, you know, in Christianity, the resurrected sun god turns out, you know, is, it, you know, is Jesus, it's Jesus Christ who, you know, has administered 12 helpers. Um, you know, these are the 12 houses of the zodiac. Jesus, you know, comes out of the, you know, is resurrected at the vernal equinox. This is when the sun comes out of the tomb of winter. Um, you know, after being dead for three months, you know, this is the three days. Um, you know, the virgin birth is a reference to the constellation of Virgo the Virgo, Virgo the Virgin, which, you know, rises helically on December 25th. Um, you know, you get into concepts of the processional cycle of the platonic year where the sun has been in the house of Pisces for the last 2000 years. You know, the opposite house of Pisces is Virgo. You know, this is again another reference to, um, you know, Virgo the Virgin. You will see the virgin reference also in Blue Lodge Freemasonry, and this is where things really, and my book, to my knowledge, is the only one that talks about this, is, as I was mentioning when I started telling you the story, is it is the virgin mother Isis, um, I mean, who is clearly the virgin mother Mary in Christianity, but it's the virgin mother Isis who possesses this secret name of God, um, and, you know, you know, it's through this that she will resurrect, you know, Osiris to sire Horus. Well, when, when a master mason is raised by the strong grip of the lion's paw, he has he, he's pulled up and the person who, who is raising him whispers a word in his ear. And what that word is, is what's called the substitute word of a master mason. I can't tell you what it is. I'd be breaking my oath and I don't write it down in the book, but it's not the true name of God. It's a substitute word. The reason this is important is because that word is lost when Hiram Abiff dies. To make a long story real short, the to, to communicate that word, that substitute word between two Freemasons or two Master Masons, they have to form what is called the five points of fellowship. 
Well, the five points of fellowship, of course, form a pentagram. And the pentagram in free, Blue Lodge Freemasonry is what's known as the blazing star. Well, if you read your Albert Pike, you will know the blazing star is a reference to the Egyptian dog star Sirius, which is Isis. So when you form the five points to communicate the substitute word, you are paying homage to the Virgin Mother Isis as represented by Sirius. You will hear this all over the place. I mean, this is a term I'm sure you and your listeners have heard before. Um, you will hear Freemasons refer to themselves or be referred to as widow's sons, though or the son of the widow. Well, the widow is Isis. I mean, when she, she becomes widowed, when Osiris is killed. I mean, and, you know, this is your astral, you know, nexus to the Egyptian dog star, the lost word, the resurrected sun, as it is in Blue, in Blue Lodge Freemasonry, and which you will see paralleled in Christianity and other, you know, religions when you study comparative religion and things of that sort. This is so interesting, and definitely in segment two, I want to discuss even more. But recently, about a year or two ago, one of my guests went to the Vatican, and she hired this very, very known uh, tour guide there who took her to certain parts of the Vatican where most people do go, don't go to. And she saw a lot of Egyptian artifacts and so on. She saw a, a, a statue of, of Isis and Horus in she decided to ask this individual, why is it that there's so much Egyptian artifacts here? And the man said, oh, you don't know? A lot of this became part of the Christian Christian religion. Almost, and I hate to, to say this because I know it would offend some people, sometimes truth hurts folks, but could this be that Christianity is an Egyptian myth? And we'll discuss this in segment two, the painting by... Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, the Last Supper, where you have the twelve apostles. They're divided into groups of three, which are the 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 solstices, solstices and the equinoxes, and so on. Why is it that it turned from Egyptian mythology into Christianity? I, 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 um, absolutely, um, you are one hundred percent correct. Um, you do not need to read lurid conspiracy um, people or writers to discover this information. There was a Jesuit priest um, back in the 1600s named Athanathus Kircher who he interpreted Egyptian hieroglyphs and wrote extensively that he believed that Christianity was incorporating numerous elements of the Egyptian mysteries. Um, you will see in Rome around the Vatican numerous obelisks um, the Borgia apartments of the Vatican were um, replete with, you know, murals depicting the Virgin Mother Isis, Hermes Trismegistus, the Twelve Houses of the Zodiac. Um, you know, when you get into these, I mean, I, I don't have a problem talking about it. It's becoming more and more known. I mean, what I present in my book is, I, I think that the, you know, I definitely believe that when you're getting into, um, you know, the origins of Christianity, you know, most people consider this almost to be a, you know, a Roman, you know, European religion. Well, it really isn't. I mean, a lot of the, you know, early Christian writers, um, you know, you know, had ties, had ties to Egypt. Um, the, the biggie, you know, I mean, I mean, a lot of the, the early teachings of Christianity and the way it was being formulated was being formed in Alexandria, Egypt by a guy named Clement of Alexandria. The chief compiler of the documents that ultimately become the New Testament was named Origen. Um, and Origen's name, I believe, literally means the mouth of Horus. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, when you when you get into these, you know, you know, you know, sort of the the leg the legends and lore of Christianity, you will clearly see the Egyptian influence. But you have to go deeper, Mel, and you have to say, well, what, what is it? And you know, you know, what, what, you know, what, you know, why is it that you know, you know, Christmas is December twenty fifth, and you know, the, you know, the, you know, we do Easter at the Vernal Equinox. The answer to that is, and I document it, I think, pretty well in the book, is it's really what you would call astrology. Um, the better word for it is astrotheology, where it's the anthropomorphization. Part of my, you know, probably not the correct word. It's a long word, but. No, you said it right. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the taking of the sun, the stars, and the moon, and turning them into these religious, you know, figures. Um, you know, when you talked about the Da Vinci painting of the Last Supper, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're 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 absolutely correct. I mean, I I don't have a copy of my book in front of me, but I go through each one of the apostles and tell you which one of the you know houses of the zodiac they correspond to. I mean, the most obvious one is Judas Iscariot, which is Scorpio, you know, with the kiss, which is the Scorpio sting. The 30 pieces of silver is a reference to the 30-day lunar cycle. You know, the silver, you know, the 30 days of the moon are the 30 pieces of silver. Um, but, you know, you got the 12 apostles. They're the 12 houses of the zodiac. You know, the virgin birth, this parodies, of course, the virgin birth of, you know, you know, the, the virgin mother Isis. Um, you know, birthing the, you know, Virgin, you know, the, the, the son Horus, you know, this is Virgin Mary birthing Jesus. I mean, even the names, you know, all but sound the same, Horus, Jesus, Mithras. I mean, you know, you're dealing with these, you know, the same, you know, phonetics, if you will. Um, you know, you have concepts of, um, you know, you know, you got, you know, the, the crucifixion, um, of the sun, you know, this is a reference to the sun, you know, waxing and waning upon four fixed stars of the zodiac, which are Aquarius, um, uh, Leo, Taurus, and Scorpio. Um, these are the four symbols that delineate the four Gospels. So, I mean, yeah, you will clearly see, um, you know, astrotheology, astral symbols, astro symbology in Christianity. And you get into the Da Vinci painting of the Last Supper. I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely, you've got you know, Jesus at the center of the table. Well, that's, you know, G, you know, Jesus as the sun. I mean, if you take the word son of God and you drop the O in, in, in sun and substitute it with a U, you know, I mean, there you go. I mean, it, you know, it's almost one letter away. Um, you've, you've got Jesus at the, at the head of the, or it's not the head of the table. He's in the center as the sun is the center of the solar system. You've got him surrounded by the 12 apostles the 12 apostles of the 12 houses of the zodiac you were absolutely right when you said you've got them divided into four groups of three um the four groups represent the two solstices and the two equinoxes the three represents the three months that you know consist of fall winter spring and summer um so yeah i mean you know it's it's definitely that symbolism is and you'll find it in judaism i mean you'll find it with moses i mean you know you you know you get into concepts of judaism being an aryan age fire sign if you look and you you look at any image of moses um pre-reformation i mean moses is always depicted with ram's horns and this is a clear reference to the old age of aries um which was a fire you know which is a fire sign um you know you will see you know burning bushes um you know pillars of fire um you know you will have moses with the 12 tribes of israel israel well this is you know Jesus and the 12 houses of the Zodiac. I mean, you know, you will see this in other religions as well. Um, and yeah, it's definitely containing 
elements of astrotheology, astro astrotheology, astrology, and you will clearly see this. You you will see this duplicated symbolically in Blue Lodge Freemasonry as well as high degree Freemasonry and in this Royal Arch degree, which is the 13th degree in the Scottish Rite. I mean, again, you'll just see solar and astral symbolisms all over the place. And we see, as you say, Moses has the Rams, Aries. Then we have Jesus being Pisces. And now, and I hear this from a lot of people in Europe, that attendance in churches has gone down a lot. Does that mean that in the new age of Aquarius, another, another person, another being would be considered the next savior? And it makes you wonder. But also the word amen or amen makes me wonder. Amun-Ra, even in Revelation, the book of Revelation, one of God's names is, is amen or amen. Does it, you see where the whole Egyptian mythology just comes intertwined? Well, you will see, it, it would be real easy for me to sit here and say, well, it's just all Egyptian. It, it, it is a lot of Egyptian, but there's also elements that are non-Egyptian. If it was all Egyptian, I believe that this would have come out, I mean, it, much more, you know, I mean, I think people would have been aware of this much more earlier. But when you get into concepts of in Christianity incorporating this, this material, um, I mean, you are right. There is definitely Egyptian elements, but my book goes much further than that. You have to look at the Greco-Roman mysteries. These are the mysteries of Eleusis. You have elements of Mithraism being incorporated. Um, you know, you have elements of Zoroastrianism being incorporated. So just to say it's solely Egyptian, I don't think is 100% correct, but I will go so far as to say you are right. A lot of it's in there. When you get into Aquarius, my take on it, I had someone email me this. They had bought the book. They had bought it right when it came out. And I, I kind of, I didn't, I don't think I really sidestepped it, but, um, he, he, he liked the book, but he thought, well, you know, you, I wish you had gotten more into what, you know, you would, you would, you think's coming down the pike for, pipe for Aquarius, um, this new age. My take on Aquarius is a little different than I think you may hear. I mean, I know exactly what you're saying that, you know, as we leave Pisces and we head into Aquarius, is there going to be this sort of, you know, new, new sort of, you know, savior figure coming along. That's actually not my take on Aquarius. And I think it ties into what you said before, where you see church attendance down, sort of people not, not being religiously inclined anymore. My take on the age of Aquarius is, and I don't think I, if I didn't mention in the book, um, it's either, you know, I just left it out for whatever reason or, you know, what have you. My take on Aquarius is I think that the age of Aquarius heralds no religion. I think, and I don't mean it's, it's atheism. I think it's more deism than anything. I think Aquarius heralds, um, concepts of shedding away, you know, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Buddhism, and just embracing concepts of deism. And, you know, in the book, in the Royal Arch degree, I think I put it in quotes. I say, you know, coming, the coming quote unquote masonically nuanced Aquarian age, because that's really what, you know, that's really what Freemasonry embraces, this sort of deism where it's a belief in a supreme being, it's a belief in a god figure, the great architect, but not necessarily a belief in this person's personality um, or, or having knowledge of what this god figure likes or doesn't like. So my take on the age of Aquarius would be, it would be almost of an age of deism rather than a new religious tradition. Um, that would be that would be what I would that, that that would be what I would think on it. Sometimes I have to uh, keep my mouth closed to avoid 
uh, controversy, but when when you say this, it really rings a bell in my mind, and I think I can live with that because to me, folks, again, I don't mean to offend you, but th- these are my my beliefs, and I hardly have any beliefs. I to me, you either know or you don't. But anyway, I think of uh, what you said about being a deist and just being one world religion that does not have all these personalities. Because to me, religion is a toll booth on my path to enlightenment. But one last question before we take a break. Uh, the definition of religion is the belief in, in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. Since one of the requirements to becoming a, a Freemason is that you must believe in a supreme being, doesn't this render Freemasonry a religion? No, because... I, I, I would I do not I do not um, agree with your definition of religion. Um, to me, um, I, I would not call Freemasonry. If you want, if you, I would not call Freemasonry a religion, and here's why: um, religion to me, the difference between belief in God and a religion is belief in God is is sort of having faith in a supreme being, whether you want to call this entity God, supreme being, great architect, what have you. Religion, to me, is beliefs about the personality of this creature, of this of this entity, i.e., God likes this but doesn't like that. That's really, you know, when, when you get into religion, such as like Islam, Christianity, Judaism, it's a belief in God, but it's more, beliefs, it's a, more of a belief system in what this God likes, doesn't like, smiles upon, smiles upon frowns upon. Deism wipes that away and just says, I believe in a supreme being, and I do not know whether God likes, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers more than he does the Baltimore Ravens. Pardon that, you know, but that's really what it is. I don't know what God likes or doesn't like. Um, religion is more of that, you know, uh, is more of that sort of theory and doctrine that, you know, I, in order for God to love me, I've got to do this, or I've got to believe in this, or I've got to do this, or go to church on Sunday, you know, or not eat unleavened bread during these three days or whatever. Um, belief in God is just, I believe in a supreme being, I believe in a creator figure. Belief about the personality of what this God specifically likes and doesn't like, to me, is religion. Um, and Freemasonry does not require any sort of thing like that. All it does is require that you believe in some sort of you know, great architect, God, supreme being figure, whatever that, whatever that God figure is to you, if it's Christian, if it's Jewish, if it's Hindu, if it's Islam, that's up for you to decide. So on that, I would say definitely no, Freemasonry is not a religion. Um, it's more of a deistic belief system, but um, I would not call Freemasonry a religion. That's fine. And we have to take our one and only intermission. I'm just, I went over the clock because I'm so fascinated by this information. And we have so much more to discuss when we come back. But tell the audience, uh, Robert, how to buy your book, uh, become more aware of your work. Oh, sure. Um, I appreciate that. Um, for, if if, if the, the, the best way to find me is via the internet, uh, my internet page is um, it's www.robert. W Sullivan IV, and that's the letters IV because my name is the fourth. dot com. Um, from there, you can um, in the upper right corner. There's links to buy the book. It's you can buy the oversized paperback. You can it's on Kindle. It's on Nook. It's in Apple's iBookstore. You can buy it off of Amazon. You can order it through Barnes and Noble. You can buy it straight from my publisher. Um, and if you go to my website again, that's www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Um, 
There's a biography of me. There's links all over the place to follow me on social media, my Facebook pages, the like pages, my Twitter feed, my YouTube channel. Um, you know, from there you can, you know, definitely, uh, you know, interact with me. Um, if you want to contact me, I got two email addresses there and there's a link there to buy the book. And again, it's in ebook format. It's in oversized paperback. It's in Kindle Nook. It's on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and, uh, shouldn't have any problem finding it. It was a huge download for me, folks. And when we come back, I want to discuss the title of your book, The Royal Art of Enoch. Enoch. I want to know what the relationship between Freemasonry and Enoch is. Don't go anywhere, folks. I'm here with Robert W. Sullivan IV discussing his book, The Royal Art of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
This is Michael Tosarian, and you're listening to Veritas.